Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. I'm really glad you're with me. And by the way, let me just start with a shout out to the people who attended the World Outlook Conference. It really was a first class event. I mean, I couldn't believe the quality of the information that was out there. I mean, we literally have over 25 specific recommendations that people can take action on from a variety of analysts who've got an excellent track record. I mean, I'm reviewing them myself, putting them on my radar, looking them on my watch list. So uh, again, that's what you're getting with that. And you can still get the video for that, by the way, by going to mikesmoneytalks.ca. But again, big thank you to everyone who participated. I think you're glad you're there. And I'm glad you're here today because we have a great show planned for you. I've got Peter Grandich, the Wall Street whiz kid himself, is going to be with me in just a few minutes. Plus, we're going to start off with the BC NDP has introduced a piece of legislation that they want to pass in double time. They want this passed by May 16th that I think may have a at will have, not may, it will have a profound impact on fishing, on mining, on forestry. I mean, the list is a long one. Any kind of resource project, anything done on public land, which is about 94% of the province, uh, they're going to offer uh, co-management with First Nations groups. There's so many questions out there. This is going to stall development. It's going to hurt economic development in a province that is already suffering if people actually knew the numbers. Anyways, I'm going to get into that in just a couple of minutes. You don't want to miss it. And I've got Michael with me, of course. I've got Victor. I've got Ozzy. I've got a great Goofy Award for you, one that I think is, uh, you know, if you're worried about free speech, this one may be the be-all to end-all on that. But first, I was going to call what's going on in British Columbia that ended in the resignation of Minister of Post-Secondary Education and Future Skills, Selena Robinson, a cautionary tale. But you know what? It's too late for that. This is happening across the country. It's about censorship, anti-Semitism, and cowardice and kowtowing to extremists. For those who aren't up to date, let me just say, this is pertinent no matter where you live. In the last week of January, on an online panel with B'nai B'rith Canada, Ms. Robinson, referring to the region of Palestine prior to 1948 and the establishment of Israel, called it a crappy piece of land with nothing on it which was immediately branded a horrifically racist statement by pro-Palestine, anti-Israeli groups, as the definition of racism seems to continue to morph to encompass just about anything. But only the most naive will think that the fact that Selena Robinson is Jewish and pro-Israel didn't play the major role in this hyper-reaction. It's more than naive, it's willfully dense not to get that. Given the numerous other offensive statements made by politicians, including those denying even the atrocity of October 7th, that didn't bring any such reaction, didn't get that reaction from the BC Premier or other groups, come on, it's easy to conclude. The reason is because those people aren't Jewish, not pro-Israel. Ms. Robinson immediately apologized, by the way, and said the offending statement was a reflection on the lack of natural resources, nothing else. But as I say, she apologized. Then she apologized a second time. Still not enough for the offended groups. And since then, she said, hey, I'll take anti-Islamophobia training. Still not enough for the offended groups or the BC Premier members of his caucus. I think it's important to note that when you're dealing with extremists, it never is enough. And we're seeing that play out right now on the world stage, where Hamas has made it clear numerous statements along with tens of thousands of Canadian supporters, that nothing short of the end of Israel and the killing of all Jews is acceptable. So, come on, it's not surprising that literally nothing that Minister Robinson did would be enough. And the Premier and the caucus went right along with it. Gave them her head on a platter. And by the way, that still wasn't enough for some, as the subsequent vandalizing of her office illustrates. But it's no surprise but still important to note, at no time did the offended Islamic and Muslim student groups see this as an opportunity for anything but punishment, an opportunity to reach out, to forgive. No, nothing short of her political death was sufficient, which Canadians value. I'm just wondering this. You know, when you look at that thing play out, which Canadian value is Premier Eby holding up? The no forgiveness part? The no dialogue part? Surrendering to mob justice? Let me remind you that the accusation of heinous racism was about a piece of land, which she said had everything to do with its lack of natural resources. But somehow that's the rationale for her to lose her job. 
And what about a double standard? Come on. You may not be aware of this, but on January 27th, International Holocaust Remembrance Day, BC Premier David Eby tweeted the outrageous statement, we stand with the Muslim community throughout Canada on this sorrowful day of remembrance. Come on. There were no cries, by the way, though, from the Jewish community for his resignation. He apologized, rightly so, and that was it. But now he forces the resignation of Minister Robinson after she gave two apologies, gave some context, agreed to take anti-Islamophobia training. I mean, my gosh, what did she miss? A hundred Hail Marys wearing sackcloth, cries of shame by the entire NDP caucus every day for a year? No, of course, that wouldn't have been enough. Nothing ever is. And by, by the way, if someone with an unblemished record of ethnic outreach can be censored, like Ms. Robinson, can lose their job. Don't be naive. Any of us could be next. What's also noteworthy is think about this. Premier David Eby was the former head of the BC Civil Liberties Association. Instead of defending free speech and his minister's right to comment, especially again after several apologies, he couldn't cave in fast enough to extremist Islamic groups fueled by blatant anti-Semitism. He had the opportunity to show leadership, to stand up for Canadian values, to call out their refusal to accept an apology, offer forgiveness, or stand up to the blatant anti-Semitism. He didn't. And that mirrors the lack of leadership we're seeing across the country. Although, in the spirit of what I'm saying, let me finish with this. For the record, I forgive Premier Eby for the lack of leadership, the moral cowardice and kowtowing to the anti-Israel, anti-Semitic extremists, and the rejection of Canadian values like forgiveness, the blatant double standard. Yes, I forgive him for all of that. Hey, just a reminder, you can still buy the uh, Outlook Conference video right now. You just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. It includes all of, the, uh, all of the video, but all of the recommendations. There's over 25 recommendations that you can take action on. Really interesting stuff for a, a variety of analysts, every one of them, though, with a superior track record. I think you're going to find it fascinating, so certainly take advantage of that. I'll be back, though. There's so much more to come, including that story about British Columbia. Could we do more to make it a less attractive place? Well, the government's trying. I'm always amazed at how government doesn't consider economic development or doesn't consider the impact of some of their legislation. And I've got a beauty right now. I mean, you look in British Columbia, look at investment capital per worker. We're about 62% of what they do in the U.S. Well, there's a new piece of legislation that I want to bring to your attention right now. And sadly, because it should be in your attention, it should be front and center. We're talking about the BC government, and I'll just say it in a nutshell, is proposing to give 204 First Nations uh, sort of co-management of all Crown land, all public land. I mean, the implications are huge for a variety of industries. Obviously, lumber, you'd be talking about mining, uh, but right across the board, and it just hasn't had enough coverage. It's just come to light thanks to Von Palmer at the Vancouver Sun and thanks to the work of Macmillan LLP, which specializes in environmental and indigenous law. And I've got Robin Younger on the line with me right now. He's with us. He, By the way, he was also, Robin was former Deputy Minister of Energy. He's head of the Environmental Assessment Office. He's been a treaty negotiator. And as I say now, lawyer with Macmillan. Uh, Robin, first of all, we do appreciate you taking time with this on this, I think, incredibly important subject. So I'm going to start. I just gave a very quick, uh, you know, summation there. Can you tell us what this legislation would be all about? Uh, sure, happy to. Although I have to take a little bit of a step back to, to explain where it comes from, because it all comes from the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which is not a treaty. It's not the law of Canada. It's not international law. But it's an instrument that, that's out there. And in 2019, British Columbia passed an act called the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act and says, we want to bring this into the law of British Columbia. And uh, it's, it's, it's not the law of British Columbia, otherwise not the law of Canada, otherwise. So under Section 3 of that act, the province has committed, has obligated itself to take all necessary measures to make BC's laws consistent with the UN Declaration. That's a big deal. The UN Declaration has provisions that talk about First Nations having the right to own and control the lands that they possess by way of traditional territories. And, you know, everywhere you go, you'll see a land acknowledgement at a school assembly or a local government meeting. I mean, the whole of the province is a traditional territory of, of some nation, many overlapping. 
Um, there's provisions in the UNDRIP about, you know, the need to consent for development of a major project. So the province is in the process of reviewing and updating all of its legislation because of Section 3 of this Declaration Act. And what we're seeing now is for the first time, uh, they're making some changes to a particular piece of legislation, the Land Act, that's getting quite a bit of, of attention. I, I wouldn't, I mean, I'm not surprised it does when they start talking in terms of you're going to have co-management. I mean, it's tough enough to get anything done in the province as it is, but you're going to get co-management. And there's so many questions that come from me when they say we're going to consult with First Nations as just as a layman standing on the outside. I go, well, you're going to talk to the elected bands are you going to talk to the you know hereditary chiefs? We saw that all go through with the coastal ga gas link. We saw problems with uh, unanimity. I mean, first of all, when we had Kinder Morgan, uh, I mean, so right now the system is that ultimately, before this changes, it ultimately is the minister has can decide what the public interest is with all sides competing and input from sides. But they're suggesting now that it's going to be co-managed with First Nations, as I say, which begs my questions about, who in First Nations? Yeah, it's it's a good question, Mike, and you covered a lot of ground there. So, I mean, the starting point I should add is that we have a system right now before these legislative changes, before the Declaration Act. It's the duty to consult. It's in section yeah. from Section 35 of our Constitution. We're one of the few countries in the world that has constitutionally protected Aboriginal rights. We're one of the most progressive nations in the world in terms of actually hardwiring the protection of Aboriginal rights into our constitutional law. And that's where all this duty to consult comes from. What we're talking about here is beyond that. It's not based on the Constitution. It's based on government's decision to implement the UNDRIP through the Declaration Act. This is not required by our Constitution. So what's being contemplated now with respect to the Land Act is a form of, well, not a form, it is joint decision-making or consent-based decision-making because under that BC Act, the Declaration Act, it says cabinet can authorize ministers to go negotiate agreements with Indigenous governing bodies. And, and when they do, they can provide for joint decision-making or a requirement for consent by the First Nation before the, the minister can exercise that power. Right now in the Land Act, it says the minister can issue a tenure for, you know, heli skiing or a water yep. power project or whatever, uh, if the minister is satisfied it's in the public interest, the public interest. It actually says that in the Act. So if, if a, an Indigenous governing body is also making the same decision or has the ability to consent or not consent to the minister's decision, there's a very live question, well, will they consider the public interest? Is the public interest defined the same? Shouldn't they be considering the interests of their community? Isn't that the very purpose of all of this? And to my knowledge, there's no good answers out there to that question yet. And, and again, that's a concern because the government has fast-tracked this. And, you know, in my opinion, submissions, as you say, they're already starting on the legislation. Submissions at the end of March, they're saying they want to pass this by May 16th. Something so fundamental. And I can tell you from uh, communications that I, I've received personally, this is of tremendous concern to industry right now. I mean, for example, you know, I'll just throw a couple at you, though, but petroleum industry is already ranked 15th out of, out of 17 for the least hospitable place to invest. You know, our mining industry is way down the list in British Columbia, again, of jurisdictions welcoming uh, mining, making it hospitable. So I, I don't see this as anything that creating confusion, the, at the very least, creating a ton of confusion, which will discourage capital investment. Well, I think it's definitely creating confusion and it's complicated. You know, I, I think there's a lot of people are saying right now it's going to change everything tomorrow across the province. Mm -hmm. To be clear, it's not. It's not going to change everything tomorrow across the province. These powers will only exist where the government signs an agreement with one or more indigenous groups. But, you know, they've already signed a couple with the Taltan. There's a few more under negotiation with the Taltan. Um, they're also negotiating one in the Seashell area which has caused considerable controversy. Yes. You're probably aware of the dock management plan issues up there. And once this legislation passes to the Land Act, it, it, the whole purpose of it is to be able to give effect to these agreements under the Declaration Act. So once that legislation is changed, the government can create these new agreements with a stroke of a pen. They don't have to go back to the legislature. Yeah, we'll sign one with you, we'll negotiate one with you, we'll negotiate one with you. 
And the, the government is saying, well, don't worry, you know, we'll consult people on those individual agreements. But, you know, A, that's just the promise. B, there's nothing in the Declaration Act that requires it. All the Declaration Act says is if government's negotiating one of these agreements, they've got to make public who they intend to consult. It doesn't say they must consult this person, that person, whatever. And if you look at what's happening um, with the only, you know, active one that's not just specific to, you know, a mining company or whatever, the, in Fender Harbor, uh, the folk are quite upset about, saying the consultation has been inadequate. You can find that on the Pender Harbor and Area Residents Association website. They got a button on Section 7 agreement, and it's all, it's got their concerns. So I, I think one doesn't have to assume that it's going to change everything and every square inch tomorrow to still say, wait a minute, this is a really, really important decision for government to make, because once that power is changed in the Land Act, it's there. Well, I'll come back to look at the consultation on this alone. You know, if your company hadn't put a bulletin out, if Von Palmer hadn't written about it in the Vancouver Sun, I don't think anybody would have heard of this. You know, I mean, or, you know, maybe that's an extreme nobody would have heard. But I mean, that certainly isn't public consultation. That isn't full, you know, where the potential impact of this change certainly hasn't been met by the level of consultation. So, I, you know, I choke on that immediately. Yeah, fair enough. And I mean, I'll, I'll try and keep my comments to what, yeah. what the law is. But I mean, I think you, you know, aptly noted that the consultation materials on the website said, take your comments till end of March, but legislation is going to start drafting in February. Uh, in, in fairness to, to the minister, from what I've seen and heard, he has said, look, you know, we probably could have done a better job and we're going to do a better job and we're going to take the time that we need. Um, for, for me, the, the consultation process, you know, of course, is important, but Irrespective of that, you got these underlying issues. Is it a big issue or isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think even if you have a significant consultation, which is probably a good idea, there is it's a still a pretty important issue. So, some people are saying it's not an important issue. I I respectfully disagree with that. Well, and, and again, to me, it invites a more lengthy process, obviously, and that's an issue for anyone. I mean, the thing that I think is underappreciated is we're in a capital investment competition. There are lots of jurisdictions in the world. And as I say, we're already ranking very low down on those things in British Columbia. And so to me, this doesn't uh, resolve any of that side of the investment of the business uh, uh, equation. And I guess, and maybe if it wasn't such a short timeline, my complaint that I have a lot of questions isn't as pressing, but it is a short timeline. So it's time to have answers to these. You know, that's what, you know, I I think I shouldn't have that many questions. And I guess I'm going back, I'm influenced, Robin, by, you know, looking at when they were doing Kinder Morgan and I think 43 different First Nations signed mutual beneficial uh, benefit agreements and eight didn't. Hence, we had a problem. And as I say, you go up to the coastal gas link, who are we talking to? Hereditary chiefs or elected band bodies? You know, uh, those are serious issues if things want to go forward. Yeah, you have them now, of course, and then this will introduce another layer. One of my uh, colleagues in a different firm, uh, you know, raised the question, could there be 204 of these, you know, agreements in relation to a type of Land Act decision? And Mm -hmm. what about overlapping 10 years? Because... There's lots of places in the province where more than one Indigenous group claims it as its traditional territory. I mean, maybe the government wouldn't sign agreements there. I don't know. But there's a lot of questions. And you absolutely hit the nail on the head. I mean, we, we do mostly commercial law. We do work for governments, First Nation too, but mostly corporate commercial and you know business law. And, and I deal with a lot of companies from all over. And you, you try and explain this to a company that hasn't invested in British Columbia yet. It's difficult for them to get their heads around. You try and explain it to you know staff at a foreign stock exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we deal a lot with um, um, companies coming in and asking about this issue and what does it mean from a, is, are there potential anti-corruption issues? Um, there's, it gets very complicated, right? Because global companies are subject to the UK Bribery Act in many cases, the US Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And if you're paying benefits to Indigenous group, uh, it gets certainly gets more complicated if they're also holding uh, governance authority. I just see, as I say, I, there's so much more to come on this and so little time, you know, before it's late. And, you know, we're talking about 94%, what, some 94, 95% of the BC la- land that's, you know, public land, that's crown land there. And uh, 
as I say, the list of questions, which, which makes me ask, Robin, can I put you on the hook and say, can we visit again this as more details become available? Because uh, your group at Macmillan, you at Macmillan have been, you know, the leading edge on this. And of course, with your background as, you know, former deputy minister of energy, head of the environmental assessment office, uh, you've got a unique perspective and an informed perspective on this. So hopefully we can visit again in the near future. Yeah, you bet, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's much, much appreciated your time. Time now for the quote of the week. Climate scientist and activist Michael Mann has been one of one-man hit squad, taking aim at anyone who challenged the climate change agenda, especially his famous or infamous hockey stick graph that purported to show a sharp rise in temperatures over the last 100 years after sort of 900 years of flatlining, which Penn State professor Mann claimed proved that global warming was man-made. You know, you might remember two Canadians, engineer Steve McIntyre and University of Guelph economist Ross McKintrick's paper that criticized the hockey stick, stating there's a huge debate over the validity of the graph because of the data they used. What's noteworthy, though, is the degree to which man's bully tactics in response to criticism of the graph set the tone for debate on climate change that continues to this day. He popularized the word denier. He attacks critics personally, not the science. Not the debate, he attacked them personally. And in that way, he set the tone for much of what we have as climate debate. Well, actually, no debate at all. But name-calling, professional assassination. For example, in response to McIntyre's criticism, man called McIntyre human filth and an asshole and later compared his use of statistics to white supremacy. He called Australian journalist Tim Blair a misogynistic ogre, one of the worst people in the world who better hope there isn't a hell, that kind of stuff. I mean, his attacks were never to foster debate, but rather to ruin reputations of those that question him. And I think it's cost us all that that was adapted as the, or adopted as the sort of go-to approach. I mean, it's argued that man, more than anyone else, set the tone, supercharged the no questions allowed mantra on climate, and as you just heard, personally attacked critics. Which brings me to my quote of the week. This is from this transcript, ongoing right now. It's a lawsuit that Mann brought against columnist Mark Stein for defamation, again, for questioning the hockey stick graph. But it's now gone to the jury, finally. This is, I mean, it's a 2012 lawsuit. That's how long it's taken to wind its way through the courts. I want you to hear firsthand, though, from the trial, the sleazy tactics used by this climate scientist to prevent open dialogue and debate, which is the essence of science. It relates directly to his attempts to discredit climate scientist Judith Curry. I hope you heard her on Money Talks. It's one of my favorite interviews of all time. Incredibly knowledgeable, well presented. But she was someone who dared ask questions. She asked about the certainty with which climate change was being presented to the public. She said it was certainly not warranted. Well, up until then, by the way, she dared to question the UN Governmental Panel on Climate Change. Curry was a celebrated climate scientist. She'd been co-author of the Encyclopedia of Atmospheric Sciences, co-authored Thermodynamics of Atmospheres and Ocean, member of the National Research Council and Climate Change Committee. I mean, the list keeps going, by the way. But she dared question the science. And Michael Mann went to work. The jury heard he emailed colleagues accusing Curry of what some described in court as one of the oldest slurs against successful women, that she slept her way to the top. Mann falsely claimed that when Professor Curry was a PhD student, she slept with her professor. Absolutely false. In, in fact, in court, he was forced to admit that every fact in the email was false, all because she disagreed with his hockey stick graft that claimed 1,000 years of flat temps or 900 years and then catastrophic warning. It's one of the most outrageous kind of examples I've ever heard. He falsely accused, as I say, Professor Carey, and this was his response in court. In court. Man stated under oath, yes, I readily acknowledge I got those facts wrong. He declined to apologize in court to Professor Curry, who was there with her husband in court. As I say, he set the tone. An unprincipled slime ball set the tenor of climate debate that far too many politicians have been happy to follow. 
Hey, by the way, I've just got to remind you quickly that, as I mentioned, you can still get the video for last week's World Outlook Conference. I mean, man, there was some terrific presentations, but the video includes, what, over a dozen, if not more, individual recommendations, you know, actions that you can follow. You hear from different people, whether it's Ryan Irvine and Aaron Dunn, Keystone Financial, whether it's Paul Beatty, whether it's Ben uh, Callender. Uh, it's lots of great stuff within that. And that's, again, many people, we had a terrific conference. Your chance to, if you wouldn't attend in person, your chance to get a copy, just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. It's right there, mikesmoneytalks.ca, and you'll have access right away. You know, it's interesting. I've been observing the disconnect between, say, gold prices and the actual, you know, junior market in gold. And I'm wondering if there's big opportunities. So I thought, hey, no better to get the expert himself, the Wall Street whiz kiss, Peter Grandich on with me. Peter, thanks for finding time for us. Much appreciated. Michael Campbell calls. Were you crazy? Of course I make the time. Well, that's very kind of you. But I'm going to come back to that junior resource. But I'm going to start with this. In February at the World Outlook Conference, 221, you recommended uranium. Now you've watched that thing double, some triples out there. So my question to you is, does it get you a little nervous? I mean, there's there's got to be profit taking at some point. Uh, how do you handle a market like that that's done very well, Ali, your prognostication, but what do you do at that point? Well, good news, bad news for me. Uh, about a week or so ago, maybe even two, I made a decision to take those profits. They were anywhere from 100 to 500% something yeah. gains in and put them into an area that I was already down a lot thinking it can't go any lower. And in just a short time, it did. And you brought it up to junior resource market outside of uranium. So while the good news was we, we did very well in the uranium, doing very poorly in the juniors, thought for certain a week or 10 ago has to be the bottom. And as you and I speak, it's probably down another 10% from when we entered. So uh, I learned, like you did a long time ago, Michael, I put my pant legs on one leg at a time. <laughs> well, I'll come back to the, the resource market in a second, but finishing with uranium. Now, when you do that and you took, uh, you took your profits and nobody, you know, the old cliche, nobody ever lost money taking a profit. But do you have in your mind a re-entry point where you say, okay, so if I got a 20% correction, you know, because, I mean, when you and I talked about that in February 21, that was a lonely thing to talk about. We didn't have any company. Well, now, of course, I was shocked even at the Outlook Conference, our Outlook Conference, but other places. Man, it's everywhere. And I thought, that's usually a sign of at least defend yourself, defend your profits, whatever. You might sell half your position, you might sell all, whatever it is. But then the question becomes, do you have a re-entry point? Because the fundamentals of what was driving it don't change. It's just all of a sudden people recognized it. it, it as always, you're, you're ahead of most people. That, that was the main reason, Mike. A, it got very crowded. Suddenly, everywhere you looked, people were talking about uranium and you know rockets going up on the Internet and all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. I, uh, my, my feeling was that, so rare to get in really at a bottom. And I have to tell you the mood, and I know you, I keep going back to it, but the mood in the junior resource market now is more bearish and totally contrarian than even it was in uranium in 2021. Okay. So that, that helped too. But my feeling about the uranium is I don't think that story is going away. I think the story itself can only work higher, meaning the demand for it and the need for it has, as far as the eye can see, outside of a terrible accident that suddenly shifts people's view again. The problem, as always, is, Michael, when people come in too hard and too fast, you at least get a nasty correction. So if you are in it, I don't think that was the top. I don't think you missed the mm -hmm. bell ringing. But I always get somewhat nervous when suddenly I went from an empty boat to a crowded boat. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, in my case, and, and just to share, in my case, I sold covered calls on some of the stocks I had, which is another protective, me you know, mechanism for exactly what you describe. I don't think the story's over. It's just what we're paying for that story got expensive, you know. And and let's come back to the other point you were making. Talk about not paying expensive prices, and that is in the junior resource market. I mean, you know, as we're talking right now, gold's over two thousand dollars an ounce. You'd never know it looking from some of the junior resources or silver is still in a solid, you know, trading range, et cetera. 
What do you make of that? I mean, is it just one of those times that you're just so out of favor? Well, I'm certainly out of favor for people that were listening. There's no question about that. You know, I'm going to do a special report this weekend. And, and, I, and I observed just before you and I went on that Newmont Mining, the world's largest gold producer, is trading around $32 a share, offering a, Michael, I find this hard to believe, a 5% dividend. You recall that the only times we used to get dividends, you had to play the South African goals back in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And it's at a price where gold was when it was $500 lower. Yeah. So if, if, if Newmont is struggling like that, what can possibly be happening to junior resource stocks in that level? And you, you, there's only two things, Mike, at the end of the day. You and I are big boys. We've been around the block twice. Either they rang a bell, we didn't hear it, and they closed the door behind us, and we're stuck forever. Or it's like uranium was back in 2019, 2020. Or even worse than some of us can remember in 1999 and 2000, when gold broke below 300, and the comment used to be, last one out, turn the lights out. Mm -hmm. And then what happened? For the next 24 years, gold outperformed the stock market. Gold is up actually more than the stock market from January 1, 2000. You would never know that looking at the mining shares and especially the junior resource market. What do you look for at this time, though? Because, you know, I'm, the, I'm old fashioned. I like to buy low. You know, I like to buy low and sell high when I think the market has mispriced an asset. And so I look in that sector and I'm just wondering, what do you consider or what are the kind of characteristics you would look for with some patience? And you say, OK, I've got a two or five year time horizon, three year time horizon. Uh, but as you say, the prices are very attractive. So what kinds of things do you look for? Mike, there are companies now with advanced stage expiration, even in the development where their gold in the ground is being priced based on a market cap somewhere between 5 and $15. That's just, yeah. if you believe gold is not going back down, because that's always what can happen. If it falls 500, these things aren't going to go up. But even if you think gold just stays here or works a little bit higher, which I think it will be somewhat higher into the latter part of the year, most of these things should rise and rise nicely. I guess the one thing I, so let me give you my two perimeters now, Mike, as I uh, do my farewell tour in this business on the 40th year. I don't want to look outside of North America. I personally, doesn't mean that there's not good projects out there. There's too much going on now that can run risk. Panama was the most recent. Yes. Scenario. Yeah. And I'm too old to go through one of those things again. So I'm hopeful that that's not going to happen in certain provinces in Canada and certain states in the United States. I'm also believing that you could almost get to the point now and throw a dot and make money in it. Not easy to say it to the people that are down 70 or 80 percent in a lot of these things. And there's going to be a merger out of necessity, too, Mike. Some small companies have too many shares outstanding too low of a price, and funding is almost impossible at any fair pricing now. So there's going to be emergency out of necessity. But once that's out of the way, I really think that, you know, like I said, this is like trying to tell somebody in uranium uh, in 2020 that, you know, the story is turned. And the fundamentals don't match the share price. And new, all you have to do is look at Newmont to see that, at how out of place it is right now. You know, I look at uh, also a, a little different opportunity or additional opportunity is that people would buy options playing gold to go up, you know, like a call option to play uh, GLD, you know, the gold ETF to go up. Well, some of these uh, with proven reserves are just that, but they don't have an expiry date. You know, like if I buy an option, I might buy it out for six months or eight months, you know, nine months, whatever. But no, if you've got, uh, you know, a company with proven reserves and you just buy them, well, it's like having an option on gold because it's so underpriced at this point and you can hold it for 20 years. I'm not that you want to, but you know what I mean? It doesn't have an expiry date. Michael, the volume was so low the other day on the Toronto Venture Exchange that it literally saw the tape stop. Huh. Never I imagined that, that that would be. That's how limited and lack of interest at this point in time. And here's the only argument I'll give for people. 
If you're going to believe the don't worry, be happy crowd on Wall Street, that this is great electrification coming. The world's still going to grow. We need all these technologies. You need the metals that are necessary to have those things. And there's been a real lack of true exploration and development of major projects worldwide for well over a decade, might even be 15 or more years. And so these juniors will come back in the vote simply out of necessity because that's, if you're going to believe the argument of where the world is going, then you especially have to believe that there's still going to be a need. And mostly times it's the juniors that make the big discoveries, not the major corporations. Um, just going back with your years of experience, do you also sense that there might be a period of mergers or not mergers, acquisitions, I should have said acquisitions, because the work's been done, they're undervalued, you couldn't reproduce the development uh, scheme that they had, or, you know, the exploration, discovery, proving it up, you couldn't reproduce that at today's prices. So I'm, I'm sort of wondering, am I going to see a few acquisitions, you know, from bigger companies into smallers? Well, Mike, I've played the big heed now with biases uh, to Quebec. I have got involved in several projects, all of which I believe will be M&A candidates. Mm. Uh, Quebec is one of the best places in the world to be a miner and an explorer. And I think that's where people are going to look once they recognize how cheap things are. And I think you're absolutely right. <clears throat> There's no question now, uh, things like that, even a major there, I am gold, which was really on the fumes of survival ship a year or two ago, has turned things around now and are going to become a very attractive asset because these major producers have millions of ounces a year reserves that they have to replace, Mike. I mean, they produce three, four, five million ounces a year. Within two years, they got to find 10 million new ounces, and that's not easy to find these days. So yeah, I'm with you. I think there's going to be a lot of M&A. And in your great country in Canada, I think Quebec's going to be one of the places where we're going to see a lot of that. Well, I'll tell you, it's a, it's an exci I think it's an exciting time. Appreciate what you're saying. Some people are down and they feel it. But uh, I look at the interest in this is really building at this point. And, and I recommend, that's why I recommend people go to Peter Grandich on Twitter. Just simple, at Peter Grandich. But go to Peter, PeterGrandich.com. Peter fills you in on a daily basis. And also you can find him on YouTube. Just type in Peter Grandich. Lots of great interviews, stuff like that. Peter, thanks you so much for taking the time with us. Always a pleasure and an honor, Michael. God bless. You know, it's fascinating. One of the things I've talked about on Money Talks is that we're in a period of historic change. And to be honest, my take is that people don't understand how dramatic that is. Maybe they measure it. You could measure it. And if they say, when you look at interest rates and the way they went up like a skyrocket, that was a faster pace than ever before. But the change everywhere, geopolitical, uh, business-wise, is happening faster. And man, did we ever get a good example uh, late this week? When Disney, I think, shocked everybody by saying, hey, we're going to team up with Warner Brothers and Fox and we're going to launch a new streaming service, uh, especially effective, you know, extensive sports rights and all of that stuff. I'm going to bring Mike Levy in to talk about that. My, Mike, I'm laughing because I'm bringing you in because you've seen them from the beginning. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think you had rabbit ears on your first TV. I this, did. Yeah. I did. But this represents a huge change, though. And it's really fascinating because these are competitors saying this is too tough a marketplace. You know, if, if we were to ask our listeners, uh, the people who listen to our podcast, and you ask them, what are they watching on television? A great number of them, particularly of our genre, uh, people who listen to Money Talks, they'd say sports. They watch sports. Well, all of a sudden... There's the coming together of three of the major media companies, Disney's, ESPN, Fox, and Warner Brothers. On Tuesday this week, they announced a new sports streaming venture that promises to make life easier for consumers who are frustrated with all the platforms they have to sign up for to watch their favorite teams to play. But, Mike, it's going to bring together NFL, NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball, college basketball, football, and this could well be the tipping point that dooms cable TV because it's all going to come in on one streaming platform to which you will subscribe. And then you're going to have the whole basket 
forget cable TV. Now, there is a Canadian angle that I'm going to get to in a minute, Mike, but I want to just, you know, the U.S., I had that personal experience down watching some of the NFL games. I happen to be in the U.S. You know, I'm watching something on Paramount. I'm watching something on Amazon. I'm watching something on Peacock. I got to search where all it is. Are they on ESPN? No, they're not. And what you're saying is that they want to give us a one-stop shop just to simplify. And as you say, in response to this is where the action is. You know, cable TV is in trouble. People don't, not near the same number of people sort of subscribe to a, tra- a cable service, much more likely to subscribe to streaming services. And, and then you add in, because you're not going to get all the sports, like football. Amazon's got football on Thursdays. Um, you're going to need Paramount Plus for access to CBS's Sunday afternoon games and your NBC Universal's Peacock for Sunday night football. That's right now, Mike. Those contracts, those with the cable networks, NBC, CBS, ABC, Fox, those, those contracts are going to run out. They're multi-billion dollar contracts. And here, sitting and waiting, is this ever one stop. You can get all your sports, anything you want, in just one one subscription might be 40 or 50 dollars a month is what they're talking about right now but you know mike it's going to encompass two sections of people two sections one is going to be cable cutters people of our generation maybe a little younger who are used to cable tv and we are a large but diminishing number the other are going to be what they call the cable nevers yeah these are the ones who have never had cable They've used streaming since they started watching. And as these networks came on, the streaming networks and have the sports they want, they will never be cable watchers. It's just going to be a huge, it's going to be an earth, earth-moving earth experience for those who want to watch sports. Well, Mike, when we talk about the changing media landscape, obviously it's not just in the U.S. We're seeing lots in Canada. Uh, you know, on Tuesday this week, we got Bell Canada announcing some changes. We're looking at legislative changes. We're looking at legislative protection, actually, in Canada, far more than they are in the States. So, yeah, this is not just a U.S. story. It's a Canadian consumer and industry story, too. Well, it absolutely is. And, you know, Rogers owns the Toronto Blue Jays. And, and you, well, I mean, just take a look. Take a look at Rogers and Bell. Basically, they are the streaming sports services in Canada. And they're just going to be adding more and more as it becomes available. But you can also see the impact that it's having on their regular cable television, on the regular business that they do here in Canada. They're cutting their workforce, it was announced this week, by 9%, it's the biggest restructuring effort in almost 30 years. They're going to be laying off or cutting 4,800 positions, Mike. And it's the largest, largest restructuring initiative, as I said. They're blaming a difficult economy and a regulatory requirement to open its network to competitors. I have one last thing to say. That's because they're still operating in the last century. Take a look at what's going on in the U.S. That's where it has to go, not worrying about what's the, what the government is regulating and blaming them, but looking forward instead of looking backwards. That's sure a big piece, though, the way they're lobbying government for different things, you know, their participation in Bill C-18, uh, you know, those things that, you know, wanted to have Google and Facebook pay. But as I say, part of that changing landscape as a consumer, but the business model is also different. Mike, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Mike. Have a good week. Time now for the shocking stat of the week with a shout out to our persons of the year, Blacklock's reporter. Now, I'm sure you remember last November, big story when the federal government removed 17 cents a liter in the carbon tax from home eating oil in Atlantic Canada only, though. There's 286,000 Atlantic Canadians have homes using home heating oil. And of course, Saskatchewan led the way saying, hey, how about me too? The Parliamentary Budget Office, by the way, calculated that the program was expected to cost just over a billion dollars. Atlantic Liberal MP, and he's the head of the Atlantic Caucus, his name is Cody Blois, stated, it's not just slogans, it's solutions. That is what we're focused on. That is good for the environment. Of course, no mention of the opposition to the carbon tax in Atlantic Canada, according to the polls, because they had, what, 24 Liberal seats there? in jeopardy because of it. So no mention of that, by the way. But it's interesting too, by the way, with surveys back in Atlantic Canada, 
they literally couldn't find anyone who thought the carbon tax would lower emissions. So all of this came to uh, the big melange or the mix of why they reduced this tax. But here's the thing, to the shocking stat, and it's straightforward. In the years since the billion-dollar program that was put in place that provides 15000 in support for replacing home heating, how many furnaces do you think were replaced? Well, none in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, Northwest Territories, 17 in BC, 27 in Ontario, 22 in Quebec. Here's a shocking stat. I didn't see this at all coming. Only 80. That's it. For this massive program with all the frufera, only 80 furnaces have been replaced. Ah, I'll have to think about that and my money's worth. You know, every week there's more news in the real estate market. That's why I'm always so pleased to have Ozzy Jurek with me. Also, also, it's easy for me to say, also why you should go to ozbuzz.ca. I mean, there's just a ton of stuff happening. Ozzy, let me start with saying this. Great speech you gave last week at the World Outlook Conference. And you know what that means? The polar plunge is getting kicked off today. <laughs> Outlook is done. Polar plunge on. There'll be more. There'll be a relentless stream of information about that. You can guarantee it with me all on behalf. Thanks to you, Ozzy, and my brother Gordon Campbell for Special Olympics. And you know what my biggest disappointment in the Outlook? We had nobody. We had people donate, which was lovely. Nobody said they'd swim with us. You have a message there, right? They don't want to get into the water. I, I feel for them. <laughs> I do too, but come on. Somebody would have said, I want to join your team. Now, Rob Levy, of course, is going to join us. Dustin here, our producer on Money Talks, he's going to join us in the water this year. But come on, other people, sign up. Go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. Click on board. Make the donation, but especially come and join us in the water. Ozzy, let me just talk about the uh, little change, well, not a change, but an extension of the Foreign Buyers Act. You know, the government came out this past week and says we're going to do it right through to 2027. I want you to give me the lowdown on what it really means. Well, it means that the government believes uh, that foreigners are a majority of our buyers and are distorting our markets. And and it, and in opposition to any proof that might be shown that they really represent a very small uh, amount. And, I mean, really doubling down. First of all, we now are going, instead of two years, we have four years that foreigners are not allowed to buy residential real estate. And in addition to that, we have the underused housing tax for anybody investing in Canada. Now, it, it blows me away. I wonder how, how we would feel as Canadian if the U.S. said, you know what? You go into Princeton to Palm Springs, not, not allowed, no more residential units, and you've got to pay tax if you leave your vacancy or home empty. I mean, it just, it's astounding. Yeah, especially given how many temporary visas there are out there, et cetera. But has it been effective? I mean, my, I guess my point is I don't see any notice that it's changed our affordability, for example. Well, Benjamin Tall, who's he's a, a serious economist, he says this will not go far to address the country's housing affordability crisis because such buyers are not a major factor to begin with. And secondly, that the Canadian Housing Statistics Program shows that non-residents, now we're not talking about one year, but the totality of them only own about 2 to 6% of Canadian residential properties uh, in 2020. So it doesn't have an effect, but it makes good political yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. As, as that's what we live in this country is political theater. And I can give I can give 45 minutes of examples off the top of my head. But one of the examples is, OK, so it's foreign buyers to try and keep uh, the demand down. Well, what about Whistler, for goodness sakes? There's no far, <laughs> as far as I recall, there was no foreign buyer exclusion there. Yeah. And, and I, I cannot say that it's been uh, uh, particularly mentioned, but that is uh, implied. Certainly, Whistler was ex excluded until the end of this year. Now it's also likely going to be extended to 2027. And of course, there's a whole slew of people that and, and institutions that are uh, exempted. And you have to sort of uh, really uh, have your head examined. To first of all, we've got to understand it's only residential real estate, so it doesn't really apply to commercial real estate. Mm. So a foreigner could buy. Uh, you know, a building, uh, a multifamily or uh, something that is commercial. But there's also the devil in the details because a foreigner that owns more than 10% of an entity that is residentially partly, like a REIT or something, 
is not allowed either. Now, the government had originally said that was going to be 3%, but it was such an outcry of so many people having, you know, more than 3% in, in a given entity. But if you have any kind, if you know a foreigner and they have any kind of money or an entity that has any kind of money in a Canadian institution that has residential real estate, get legal advice because, you know, nobody really understands it. Yeah, that's great. That is great advice. Get legal advice. I mean, there's also, I mean, lots of rumors of how people get around it. You know, you could, uh, you know, what if I just pay someone to buy it in their name, you know, and I have a, a separate legal agreement that's not registered anywhere, but I can enforce. I mean, I know when Australia tried to do this, it did not work. And so, I mean, there's just ways of getting around this. Well, yeah, it's just the store buyers, right? But there's, there's a whole bunch of other people. Like, for instance, if you're an Indian, uh, or a refugee that uh, that is married to, to a Canadian spouse or com even a common law partner. Now, there would be an interesting exercise, you know, how, how do you have to prove that? But uh, they, if you just marry a Canadian is a good way to do it. Uh, and workers who have worked and filed tax returns in Canada for at least three out of the four years prior and diplomats, consular staff and international organizations. And there's, so there is a slew that might yeah. exempt you from doing that. I would say that if I wanted to invest in Canada, just buy a commercial real estate. It probably would have done very well the last few years. And <laughs> we need the money. We actually have a net outflow of money in, in an enormous uh, extent. Over 200 billion is leaving. Now, yeah, well, uh, I mean, I started the show talking about the proposed new legislation that would make First Nations, uh, you know, sort of co-managers of all crown land. And I can tell you that is going to get capital to leave. Certainly capital won't come because, again, it creates that uncertainty. So, uh, yeah, we may we may see that as a more effective way of keeping people out of the country. That's for sure. Or keeping capital out of the country. Yeah. I mean, as I say, this is a big one. Let me just go to one thing quickly, though. We mentioned Benjamin Tall, CIBC. They came out with a report this week that said, hey, guess what? Remember in September, we had CMHC saying we needed 3.5 million additional to what was planned to be built, additional residential units by 2030. Well, CIBC and Mr. Tall have come out and said, you know what? They forgot to count 1.4 million people. We need way more than that. Yeah, it, it is astounding. It is, I mean, how can you forget uh, that many people? You obviously, we always uh, make certain initiatives, but we have no backup, no planning, no study, yeah. no nothing believable, and, uh, and then we are faced with these facts. Well, the, I, the pressure is huge. You know, I mean, the housing pressure is huge. We dropped housing starts, uh, housing building starts 7% last year. You know, we're not making these numbers. We're not close. They asked, by the way, the head of the CMHC in uh, parliamentary uh, committee about two weeks ago, what was the plan? She says, we don't have one. We're working on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and we also put wedges in between it, between buyers and sellers and between tenants and owners. And now it is between the regular person as a short-term rental and short-term rentals on mm -hmm. native land who are yeah. exempted. You know, just across the street, like in Kelowna, across the river, you can get short-term rentals because you're on Invest Bank on native land. But across the river, the regular Canadian can't. Yeah, I mean, there's just so so much to discuss, and that's why you should go to ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca. Now, if you put in your name and address, or your email, rather, sorry, your email, then you can get your copy every week of ozbuzz.ca. they got to know where to send it. In the meantime, Ozzy, go out and have a terrific week. Thanks, Mike. Thank you very much. I was just talking to my wife. She says, I like long, romantic walks, and I was very pleased. I thought, how nice is that? And then she says, I like long, romantic walks down every aisle at Halt Renfrew. <laughs> Ozzy, and by the way, uh, your homework for the week is to get your later hosen on, stand outside for five seconds, and then extend that time to get ready for the cold and the polar plunge. Have a great week. Take care, you too. I want to go live to the trading desk now. Victor, uh, you had a fascinating presentation at the World Outlook Conference, but I'm going to fast forward to the panel at the end of the day in which you participated. And one of the things you talked about was complacency, that the public's complacency on a variety of issues. You know, I mean, we had talked geopolitical, for example, but seems to be complacent. And I see that translate into a lot of what I'm seeing in the market the past week. 
Well, the complacency, certainly, uh, it seems as though the stock market is a perpetual motion machine and it just continues higher. The broad indices in the United States are up 14 in the last 15 weeks. Uh, put a number on it. The Dow is up six and a half thousand points from where we were in, in October. That works out to about 20% on the Dow, just to give you a feel. Uh, the NASDAQ is, of course, leading it all. The NASDAQ 100 is up about 70% in the last 16 months. That's from the lows we had in October of 2022. Well, by the way, while the Toronto Stock Index is up 17% during that same period of time, that's just the difference. <laughs> yeah, and I'll say that was one of the themes at the Outlook Conference from James Thorne, from Aaron Dunn of Keystone, uh, both saying, what are you investing in Canada for? It's, you know, and they've been saying that. for They're not Johnny-come-lately to that, just saying the opportunities are more. Even with adjusted for inflation, uh, sorry, not inflation, adjusted for currency in exchange, you know, that the U.S. is still a better place to be. And James Thorne said, and the world agrees with you. You know what I mean? Uh, it does not think Canada is a good place to be. And I'm not getting into the politics. It's just a fact. They don't see Canada as a place to be. And the big encouragement of moving money into the states and the stats you just gave us gives us an example why. Well, certainly in Canada, our major pension funds subscribe to the view that you can't be totally in Canada, you know, on a global weighting, Canada's about 3% of the market. So I think our pension funds are more offshore than individuals are. But, you know, there's there's pluses and minuses to being offshore. I mean, we've had Donald Cox for years used to say emerging markets are markets that you cannot emerge from in an emergency. Well, uh, I've always thought, you know, if, if you can't find something to do here in North America, just go fishing or whatever. And if we could look at China, yeah, I mean, the, the Chinese, uh, I'm going to use the Shanghai index here, but the market is down... Uh, we're at a five-year low. It's lost about $7 trillion from the highs back in 2021. And when you're looking at emerging markets, China was one of the places where the money managers would go and put their money. So not everything is rosy on the other side of the fence. Well, I also want to make note here, and I really want to put a red neon flashing sign. It's to warn people when the consensus is so certain that you better be careful. It's one of my rules. When everybody says something, then I back off. That's what I started my interview with Peter Grandage as me being a big uranium bull long by sort of got nervous now that everyone's talking uranium. So I took, you know, I took some money off the table on that basis. But China's the poster child for that, in my opinion, of the last few years. You know, Vic, of course, you recall this, but people recall that when they were in lockdown, the consensus, the overwhelming consensus was, hey, when they get out of lockdown, boy, the Chinese are going to be buying like crazy. Commodities are going to go way up. I'm not knocking someone for being wrong, but it is a reminder. My old, you know, one of the old favorites of ours, Richard Russell wrote the Dow Theory letter. And one of his big rules was, be careful. Consensus of analysts can be wrong. And that's just another reminder. They were dead wrong on China, dead wrong. Yeah, Bob Farrell comes to mind, too. It's like when all the experts agree something else is going to happen. Um, yeah, so... Are we experiencing that? Let me, inter let me interrupt for a sec. Are we experiencing that in the bond market now? Because, you know, let's go back, I don't know, I'm picking a time, six weeks ago. And the euphoria, you know, one, at one point they said, well, the Fed's going to lower rates every month from March on. That was one of the consensus, sort of common to say, you know, cite six uh, interest rate drops between now and, you know, the end of 24. That sort of at least got discouraged in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, last year we were talking about, uh, you know, the market is just waiting for the green light special that'll happen when the Fed says we're done raising rates. Well, the market really was waiting, and that's one of the things that's driven the stock market rally off the October lows when Powell basically said we're done raising rates. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, the, it got carried away. I, I think, it, let's say... It, the around December, beginning of January, market was certainly pricing in six or more cuts from the Fed throughout uh, 2024. They've scaled that back. They're now expecting in the United States about four cuts of 25 basis points each between now and the end of the year. In Canada, by the way, the pricing there is about three uh, 25 basis points cuts between now and the end of the year.
Uh, you know what it reminds me of? It's just an old adage is, you know, the further you get in the move, the more, more intense the forecast become. And I'll give you an example. I'm going back to about 213, 214 with the oil price. I remember forecasts from legitimate, well-known analysts saying, well, it's going to 400. You know, uh, as you get further in a move, just a warning for people, then those kind of forecasts come out. It's going to a zillion. You know, it's, and that's, I'm just saying as an old guy who's made mistakes, that's a warning for me when we get that level of consensus. I I certainly remember that in uh, 2008 when the crude oil price got to 147 or thereabouts, there were a a couple of big name analysts who were saying like $200 a barrel is a layup from here, you know, but (laughs) there has to be somebody saying that for the price to be at that high. You know, nobody, if everybody says, well, this is it, man, that they're not going any higher, you know, we're not going to yeah. have that storming in to buy it. On the other side, Mike, if I can go to this as a segue, natural gas trading in New York this week at a four-year low, and we are like a hair away from the lows that we've had for the past 20 years, and just on a back-of-the-envelope basis of, uh, you know, inflation-adjusted. And natural gas has never been this cheap. There is, you know, we've, we're finding all kinds of it, and we, of course, can't get it up, moved around to the right places. And then uh, Biden, uh, two weeks ago, deferring uh, any uh, f- further approvals exports. of exports. You know, so, yeah. you know be careful yeah, what you ask for, right? <laughs> yeah, because hey, he doesn't want any buyers for that. You know, we don't want that price stabilized higher. No, it's amazing. I mean, Vic, also to me, this is just a reflection of the historical change we're in right now. And the reason is, look at these moves. Look at these abrupt, sometimes unimaginable moves. That's what we're dealing with. And to me, that's a validation of my thoughts that this is truly a period of historic change. Yeah, you know, if we go just to monetary policy, and I know I'm old school on this, but when the government does these massive fiscal things that they've done and the central banks do the massive monetary things they've done, it does diminish the purchasing power of a dollar in a guy's pocket. Yep. And, and I think part and parcel of the, the rally we're having in the stock market is, you know, and it just is a realization of that. Why haven't housing prices fallen in half if they're so ridiculously overpriced? Well, because people actually see that they hold their value. <laughs> yeah, Stocks hold their value relative to a depreciating currency. Well, I'm pleased to say that that's been our major theme for three years, you know, protect your purchasing power. I still think that's the name of the game going forward. Uh, Vic, in the meantime, I want you to stay tuned for the goofy. It's way more aggressive than normal. (laughs) You're going to say, what was wrong with him? So stay tuned for it. In the meantime, go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. He'll give you his weekend update. Uh, I know you enjoy it. I do every week. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. I mean, at the start of the show, I chronicled the successful efforts by the B.C. government and Islamic groups to censor Minister Selena Robinson. Well, let me go to the federal level because this certainly matches that. This week, federal NDP's Charlie Angus introduced a private member's bill, C-372, known as the Fossil Fuel Advertising Act, which, as the National Post points out, would criminalize whatever the government deems, in quotes, promotion of fossil fuels and prescribes actual jail time even for Canadians who say scientifically true things. I mean, it's incredible. The bill states it's prohibited for a person to promote a fossil fuel, fossil fuel related brand element or production of a fossil fuel. But the act says, hey, you can pay up to a $500,000 fine, face jail time. For companies, that jumps to a million dollars. And I think it's noteworthy here that the Green Party's leader in British Columbia, Sonia Furstenau, has already supported this bill, which includes criminalizing a long list of, say, common pro-oil and gas arguments, even ones that are, again, based in fact. For example, the bill would make it a crime for a person to argue that natural gas is less harmful than burning petroleum. In other words, get ready for a major fine or even jail time if you say that. I mean, it's true, but you're not allowed to say it. Don't say that fossil fuels are needed for all equipment, including air ambulances or other rescue transport. 
Don't talk about the thousands of products, many essential, including hospital supplies, that are made from petroleum. Hey, it would be a crime for a store to run a free gas promotion. In short, it's a wish list of the extreme. But don't expect anyone in the NDP or Liberal government, including cabinet ministers, to speak out about this absurdity. I'm telling you, free speech is on the line in this country. It is more and more acceptable to uh, propose censorship. And that's all the time we have this week. Let me just finish with a couple of things. Um, Again, you can get the video for the World Outlook Conference, complete with over 25 specific recommendations, stocks in a variety of groups from a variety of analysts, all of them with excellent track records. So that's what you're really getting when you get the World Outlook Conference video. You're looking for ideas? This is the place to be. There's so many other things there. Plus, also, let me finish with a big thank you. We've got some people who did help out with the Polar Plunge, although I'm going to be honest, I was kind of disappointed that we didn't have more people willing to join us in the plunge. May, uh, March 2nd, Ozzy and I and former Premier Gordon Campbell, hey, we're going for a dip. We did it last year. And I might want to say I want to thank uh, sponsors at the World Outlook Conference like Border Gold, Keystone Financial, Integrated Wealth Management, all jumped in there to sponsor. So did uh, T-Gift sponsors like the Trend Letter, Schachter Oil, uh, Schachter Gas rather, InPlay Oil. I can't tell you how much we appreciate it, as well as individuals like uh, we've got Alan and Linda, Dave Mack, uh, Michael McKinnis, all stepped up with significant donations. I hope you can join them too. And that's really what I'm after here. All you have to do is go to Special Olympics, the Polar Plunge, Michael Campbell's Money Talks with Ozzy Jurek and Gordon Campbell. Hey, I would love it if you join me. Absolutely love it. We had people last year. It made it a lot more fun. It's going to be even more fun this year, obviously, for a very worthy cause, as I'm going to beat you over the head with a stick on that one, but obviously for a very worthy cause. So all of that. Don't forget the World Outlook video. Your chance to get it at mikesmoneytalks.ca. Money Talks tweets, Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook, all of that. Hey, look, we sincerely appreciate those who came to the conference and those who listened to the podcast and also recommend it to their friends. I hope you have a terrific week. 